Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today, we are accompanied by a very special guest. Yay! Dr. Jonathan Bethard. He is an assistant professor in anthropology at the University of South Florida, and his work as a bioarchaeologist and forensic anthropologist has taken him all over the world, and he's done so much cool and inspiring stuff, and we are so excited that he's here today to talk about some of it. Hi, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Delighted. Um, we will just jump right in, I guess. So you are a bioarchaeologist and forensic anthropologist. How mm-hmm. career trajectory-wise, uh, what first got you interested in in those disciplines and, and how did you get where you are today? Oh, that's a great question. So um, it, it's an interesting story that sort of isn't by accident. I originally uh, started college and was going to become a bassoonist and maybe high school band director. No way. And yeah, yeah, for Majored sure. Majored in and bassoon? I, well, I thought I was going to. And I, as I described to people, I was a very aggressive high school bassoonist. Um, <laughs> how, who do you, how does one bassoon like, aggressively? You practice for like three hours a night. You're every night after school when you're a junior and senior in high school. I was in the youth orchestra. I took lessons. I was just really into bassoons. And my <laughs> senior year of high school, I we got a new band director who happened to be an alum of the University of Tennessee. And he said, you know, you ought to go down to Knoxville. I grew up in Central Virginia. It was about five hours from where I lived. You should go down to Knoxville and study with the bassoon teacher at the University of Tennessee. Um, and, and that's sort of what I thought I would do. I went and I took some auditions um, and ended up at um, UT. And as I was sort of figuring out to go there, um, the same guy, like not that long before I went to like register for classes, he said something to the effect of, and there's this weird thing called the body farm. And of course, didn't know what that was, did enough research about it to think that in my first semester of college, I was like, I, I want to take an anthropology elective. And so my first semester of school, I took all these music classes. I took um, like ear training and orchestra and marching band. I was in the band, marching band as well, um, uh, English. Um, and then I, I had this one extra class, which was like an introductory biological anthropology course. Right. And there was a lecture in that course, my first semester of school, that the professor talked about the applications of sort of this combination of archaeology and biological anthropology, where the skeleton, the human skeleton can be used to investigate any number of different kinds of questions. And I just had this sort of light bulb moment where I was like, that is really what I want to do. And I, um, very soon thereafter, I, um, told my bassoon teacher, I think I want to change my major. And I went really, really into anthropology as much as you could when you are, you know, a freshman in college. So I I had this moment where I just knew it was what I wanted to try to pursue. Wow. That's a, that's a turn. (laughs) 
Big t- big time. And it, I, and I was really lucky because it was like, where's a really good school for this field? <laughs> and I, I happened to just be there. So um, being at the University of Tennessee, which is very well known in the field of forensic anthropology and to an extent bioarchaeology as well with the faculty that had been there, et cetera, it was it, – um, it's just where I stayed for my entire education, um, which is not probably typical of people that go into academic disciplines, but it's what I, I did. And along those way, along that sort of path of undergraduate and graduate school, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue um, a faculty position and then sort of by happenstance sort of fell into a couple of those jobs even before I um, finished my PhD and just was able to acquire um, acquire this experience in 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 both bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology to some degree that has ended up with me in my my current position um, in Tampa at USF. That's awesome. Uh, so some of the work that you've done in the past um, as a forensic anthropologist, um, you've done consulting work for coroner's offices. Mm-hmm. And and what's that like? And what does a forensic anthropologist such as yourself contribute to the uh, process of investigating crimes or just unsolved cases? If you do any kind of forensic anthropology in the United States, it it is very dependent on where you live um, and what jurisdiction you're in as to how your involvement with forensic anthropology could happen. So, oh, interesting. In um, the United States is interesting in that depending on the state and even the city um, in the state, there's a combination of coroner systems and medical examiner systems. And those are very distinct um, with coroner systems sort of being a throwback to, you know, pre, you know, in in English systems from, you know, the days of the colonies. Uh, So 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 it's it's an interesting separation. But the, the point is that. Um, in some places, uh, and there's not that many of them, maybe, maybe 20, give or take, there are some jurisdictions, mostly in medical examiner's offices, like, for example, in the city of New York, Phoenix, Maricopa County, Pima County in Arizona, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, et cetera, are a few places where either the medical examiner, either of the entire state system or in a jurisdiction, has a full-time forensic anthropologist. So in those places, a person like me would not um, do any kind of consultation there because those places already have people who are doing the kinds of forensic anthropological casework as it comes in. Usually a medical examiner, sometimes a coroner, asks for help in a case where there are only skeletonized remains that are available um, for analysis or highly burned remains, highly decomposed remains. Remains where basically you could not really identify a person based on looking at the physical remains left behind. And in some instances, maybe forensic anthropologists, if the identification of a person is not in question, they might be asked to interpret a broken bone or some kind of traumatic lesion to help give some sense of why a bone broke in the way that it did and what and how that could contribute to circumstances related to how a person may have died. I live in the state of Florida where there are 25 different medical examiner offices. Um, so I live in Tampa. That's its own district. Miami is its own district. Orlando 
et cetera. So it's very dependent in this state specifically. And there isn't a person who is a full-time forensic anthropologist in any of those offices. Um, all of us that would do any of this kind of work would um, consult um, or collaborate on an as-needed basis when we get a phone call from the medical examiner that says there's a case where we might want anthropological expertise. And usually in the United States, that's the way it happens. The way, I mean, it's an interesting sort of look at how the history of forensic anthropology developed. And it had to do with mostly university faculty who had training in what was at the time called physical anthropology, ending up um, consulting with law enforcement agencies. And then that has sort of morphed into a handful of positions now, but still I would argue that most cases that are done are probably by university faculty who, as part of what they do, um, contribute to forensic anthropological casework. I didn't realize that because usually, you know, in, in the procedural crime dramas that Amber and I watch too many of, yeah. it, it's usually a coroner who who rolls up. And, he, you know, it's like they've got the jacket. It says coroner. I just sort of assumed it was a position that every every jurisdiction no, has. No, no, it's it's actually kind of... Um, it, it, it is, it, it, it's a, some of the popular crime shows like CSI, um, or the show bones, which was on for 12 seasons, yeah. maybe, yep. um, in that case or in those cases, like they're, they're basically, those would be some instances where offices or labs had full-time people, um, in a place where that was the case. So um, where where you and I met in Massachusetts, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner has um, an, a person who does all of the cases for Massachusetts. Okay. Um, so Massachusetts isn't that big of a state, so one person probably can do it, as opposed to like New York City, where there's a handful of people just in the medical examiner's office for New York. Houston, Texas is another place where there's a very big office, where there's a couple of forensic anthropologists just for Harris County, which is Houston. It's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting thing to think about how much variation there really is across the United States. Yeah. 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 And that, and that, what that looks like as an end result in terms of, of people, well, like well it's an support or justice or, well, it's, you know. it's a really interesting thing that I, there's some degree is, um, quantifiable. Um, there's actually a database of missing people in the United States and mm-hmm. it's called NamUs, um, which what's the acronym? And it's the, the website is NAMUS.gov. And that's actually a clearinghouse for medical examiner and coroner's offices to list, um, in sort of a database format, the number of people who are missing in their jurisdiction. And there's over 12,000 people on that list. So you could probably, I'm sure somebody has done this, you could probably do some interesting sort of spatial analysis of the number of places where cases are being reported or where they're missing and look at, you know, how much forensic anthropology plays into that, particularly when individuals are found skeletonized. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just for reference, it is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. That's it. Yep, 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 yep. And yep, that's correct. Okay, well, this is this question's related. Um, what are some of the most interesting things that you have been able to tell about a person from their remains, like archaeologically or in your work as a, a consultant to the coroner's office? Oh man, that's a tough question because I, it's really hard to sort of think about um, 
what, what, what I mean, the, the totality that, you know, that, that, that the, the, the totality of how that question could be answered. And I, <laughs> I, I think probably what is impressed upon me the most when I look at skeletal remains from either archaeological sites or forensic contexts is really the way in which life gets imprinted into this into our skeletal tissues mm -hmm. particularly for people who sustain an injury and the injury heals and they deal with it or a person who has some kind of disease process uh and they deal with it and and of course one of the things we don't always know is the level to which they were able to deal with it but by virtue of just seeing a bone that's healed or a bone that a person you know a person contracts some kind of infectious disease um, and they live long enough to um, they live long enough to develop a lesion there's something about kind of resiliency that we see that like the body is capable of. Of course, sometimes people contract things like the flu um, or some kind of respiratory infection, GI infection in it, you know, that it, it's lethal within a couple of days. But so often we, I see signs of how people somehow dealt with whatever was going on in their biology, which, you know, in essence is really something that's going on in their environment. And is. Um, a lot of people sort of look at the skeleton as this thing that embodies, um, you know, it embodies our culture, it embodies our environment, it embodies our ecology, it, emb it embodies our access to what we have or what we don't have. And so I think just sort of seeing that over and over again in, in contexts from places around the world um, and from different time periods, that's sort of maybe the theme that sort of unites all of it from, from these disparate times and places. Well, that's kind of inspiring. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. That's a lot better. That's a much better way to look at it than how every time, like, I'm sitting at my desk for too long and like my butt goes numb. Like, I just mm -hmm. think about like learning about um, like the skeletal remains from Abu Herrera and mm -hmm. how you can see like what people did. And I was like, oh, someday somebody's going to dig me up and know that I just like sat at my sat desk. around, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, but no. Yeah, this the, is, you have a much better spin on it that you twenty can... 21st century couch potatoes, you know, or I, I always joke with my students, of course, I have there's nothing to corroborate this at all. But I always joke like, you know, what we're developing now as 21st century people is one day in the future, archaeologists and bioarchaeologists are going to study thumb bones and we're going to see like, yep. you know, the consequences of texting, you know, with like very robust thumbs at the expense of everything else. I mean, clearly, yeah. who knows if that's a real thing, but I, we, jo we joke about it at least. Oh, yeah. Engagement and ritual activity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> ritual Snapchat activity. <laughs> Snapchat or Tinder or Facebook or eBay or whatever people do. Yep. Moving on from the Internet. <laughs> sure. Uh, Amber, this one's on you, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you have a project in uh, in Transylvania, so in mm -hmm. Romania, um, that focuses on, quote, better understanding medieval Hungarian communities, end quote. Um, and what what did a community look like in that time, in that place? This is a really good question. Um, so I got involved with this project um, back in 2013, after developing a collaboration with a local museum in um, an e a part of the present-day country of Romania that really 
has only been part of Romania for about 100 years. And Transylvania is this interesting region of Eastern Europe in general um, that for really until um, World War One had a fairly pluralistic community of people who were Romanians, people who were Transylvanian Saxons and spoke German, and people who were Hungarian. And in the, a small region, um, if you were to, for example, Google Hungarians in Romania, the Wikipedia page comes up and you see this little green bubble in the middle of a purple map. Um, <laughs> so, so this region of Hungarian folks have been in this place geographically for give or take a thousand years. And so this project that I've been involved with, with the museum that's in this region, um, mostly the museum has functioned in, in terms of salvage archaeology related to doing excavations around village churches. So, so there's this really rich multi-village set of archaeological data um, from this what is still a really rural place. And so we've been just asking questions about, like, what can we tell about village life in fairly rural um, Eastern Europe from anywhere? Earliest sites that I've worked on is about 11, 1100 AD CE um, and all, all the way up through around maybe 18th, 19th century with a large, um, a large number of um, the data coming from like 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. So we've just been, we've sort of been diving into questions related to things like demography. Who's there? How long did they live? What can we tell about, you know, um, old age, if people lived into old age, conversely, one of this communities has, is mostly where very young people were buried like infant age. And so why were people burying their newborn infants in one particular place. We're asking questions about what can we tell about what people were eating via isotope um, analyses. I have a very small amount of um, from one of the sites with these infants. I have some um, 17th century DNA data looking at relationships amongst people. Um, we're asking questions about sort of using historical sources and what Transylvanian historians are saying, like, how people coped with the loss of their infants and how important it was in mostly Catholic or Calvinist communities that people really were concerned about the afterlife and making sure that, um, you know, people made it into the churchyard um, and people sort of time in the hereafter was um, accounted for. So, so there's really this sort of a multitude of questions that I've been working on now. I've done about I've done six seasons of field work over the total of about 13 months. And um, we, we've just been sort of examining a lot of different kinds of questions from very individual questions about what life was like for person X to what can this population tell us about village life in this time period in this place. Cool. I, I remember you gave a talk at BU about some of those infant burials. I, I, think, yeah. I think this is the same thing. They were they were buried underneath yeah. the church floor, and there was one older woman. Yes, yes, yeah. There as well. That was. I really enjoyed that talk. We're still <laughs> we're still thinking about it. In fact, um, uh, I fi finally uh, in a volume. There, the, we've got a book chapter coming out about that in 2019 from a book through University Press of Florida and. 
have a couple other things in the pipeline related to some of the DNA and some of the, the, the health stress disease questions. And I'm, I'm really interested the the current site where I'm working, which is a, um, which is a larger, um, medieval cemetery is only about three kilometers away from this site with all these infants. And we're asking questions about what, if any, was the relationship between these two villages and, did people know each other? Of course they did. And how they interacted, what, what the interactions were, where we've kind of opened up Pandora's box, right? We have sort of a, a multitude of questions, um, which, which is, I guess, a really good position to be in, though I, I feel like there, there's really no, no – I, I can't imagine a time, any time in the near future when I'm going to have all these questions answered. That's still exciting. Very much, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really good problem to have. Yeah. Um, so within these communities, were there, so when I think of medieval communities, I mean, my own view is very sort of Western Europe centric. And so I think of sort of stratified, um, highly hierarchical village organizations. Was that the case in Transylvania or were there sort of, everyone's life was kind of similar? There's some, I mean, the group that we study, they're a Hungarian community called the Seke, which is spelled S-Z-E-K-E-L-Y. And there's been a little bit written in English. The majority of what's been written on the Seke are, is of course been written in Hungarian, but there's a little bit of English. And there's, there's some discussion about the, the varying stratification, but for the most part, we're looking at like a vast, vast majority of people that were getting by in fairly small villages that in some instances have not really even changed that much um, for what you if you were to go there today. Um, some of the villages you go and you it just it feels like it's from from this time gone by, and it's because it is. You know, people will <laughs> live in, you know. 18th century homes, right? And 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 memory goes back a long way. So I have a ad hoc question here. Um, sure. And so these um, these contemporary communities that you are working in and excavating in, um, do they have a role in the excavation process? Like, or do you have team members who are from here? Do you have team members that have like a heritage connection, um, or is there outreach? Much so. I would, I mean, so the PI of the project is a local guy. His name is Jolt. He is from the place where we are working and it's his museum is what has orchestrated this collaboration entirely. So it's really sort of being led by them. And I sort of have said, or taken the position of what, what would you like me to be able, um, to tell you? Um, and we've been there before when, for example, the newspaper has come, um, and, and my, I work with a field school. So sometimes my students have been in the newspaper. Um, we, there is an archeology span day where this past summer, some colleagues at the, there was a night and they like talked about what bioarchaeology is. Um, they get visitors to the site where the active excavation is going on. Some local folks bring my colleagues like home baked donuts Transylvania, oh. these, these Transylvanian donuts. So they, th there's, I feel like a lot of local collaboration in part because the, the local museum is really driving the driving force behind the project to begin with. So Great. the community is into it. They're, they're receptive it's, and yeah. Um, 
Yeah, they. It seems like it so far. I mean, we. I, I've been going now. I've had six field seasons, and um, it seems like that. You know, I people are 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 aware that there's a group of folks doing this kind of work, and we get questions. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times the questions are like, "Well, really, what what can you tell us? How long have we been here?" Right. We know what we think, but, you know, we, we know our oral tradition. But what, what does the archaeology say? Um, and so there's a lot of folks who are really interested in just sort of getting that perspective of on when their ancestors, who are this sort of unique Hungarian diasporic community, um, how they, they just want to know, like, what, what can you tell us about how long we've been here? Yeah, it's very like affirming their identity kind of situation. Yeah, very, very much. Uh, very much so. Is there... Uh, something else about, about that project that is your the, the the thing that you love most the about about doing that work. You know, I think I just like the fact that it's very collaborative, and I I feel like my involvement there, um, particularly through this uh, field school, is there. It's sort of win win for everybody. We're helping. Uh, the museum answer questions. There just aren't that many bioarchaeologists in in Transylvania. There there are a couple, but there's just not that many. So we're I think we're fulfilling a need. Um, the I'm, I'm very pleased that it's a, a a good training opportunity for the students who are coming to learn with me there. Um, and then inherently, just you know, as a bioarchaeologist with particular research questions. The, the research questions are so rich that I'm kind of just intellectually really curious about, you know, the number of different things that we can investigate and think about. So there's there's all kinds of reasons that keep pulling me back there and things that, you know, make me really sort of eager to be part of this project. Um, since it is, since it is our, it's spooked over, that's, no, the timing is just really fortuitous for us to to have you when you're available. But since this is coming out in the month of October, someone will ask um, about Vampires. Pennsylvania itself. Well, okay, all right. Well, you, since you said it, you went yeah, right sure. there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so is that something that you have to field questions about a lot? <laughs> you know what? Very infrequently. Um, oh, very infrequently. So it's very interesting that in the reason why Transylvania um, has this lore about vampires is, of course, because of Bram Stoker's book, um, Dracula. Right. Yep. Um, and the, and it's all based around, you know, this ca brand castle, which is not that far from the current day city of um, Brashov in Romania, or if you speak German and you're a Saxon, you would have called it Kronstadt. Um, but anyway, the, the interesting thing about Brand Castle is that the real Vlad Tepes never actually even went there. So it was sort of a, a, a place that Bram Stoker used, um, in his writing as the place, uh, where Dracula lived, but the real Dracula was never there. So, so once we kind of talk about that and sort of the <laughs> the mystique myth busted yeah myth, yeah the, the the myth is busted that's not to say that in eastern european bioarchaeology and i can think of actually not even in romania there are some cases of quote unquote vampires that have been found and there there's some rich literature on this where 
for example, in mortuary deposits, there have been the um, skeletons where there's like a I don't know what the what it's described as in the article, but it's basically like a curved metal um, kind of like a Sith, maybe like, you know, something oh. like like a metal. Oh. But, but, but it's 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 basically like put over the body to keep the person so from can't raising from the dead. Yeah, you Ooh. sort of you sort of um, get someone stuck into the ground. And there are there are some case studies like that that exist in our literature. Um, but the the but the but the bubble burster for my project is there's nothing like that anywhere. Um, and the real Vlad Tepesh was born only about an hour from where I work. And you can you can go to a city now, which is a in Romanian, the name is Sigishwara, or you can call it Segishvar if you speak Hungarian, or you can call it Schasburg if you're a German speaker. Same place. It's UNESCO World Heritage City. And you can go into the room where the real Vlad Tepes was born, um, which is only about an hour away from where I work. And the restaurant where that place is, you could imagine, um, <laughs> has a very Dracula-themed menu. Um <laughs> And you can pay a few extra dollars and a, you can go into the room and a person dressed as a vampire will pop out of a coffin and say, <laughs> boo. <laughs> well, let's just go ahead and add that to the tour list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's put that, that yep, on the budget. It, yep. And, and so forgive my ignorance of this, but is that city a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of Vlad Tapas or is there no. other – it's commemoration of brutality that I wasn't. Ooh, it yeah. preserves. So Sigishwara Schasburg is a it's a Saxon city originally, and it preserves the citadel, um, this walled hilled city um, that is really remarkably amazingly beautiful with um, just what what has survived. And so it's. There's a clock tower there, for example, that's 15th century. I should know that better because I go up and down the stairs and it, each summer a couple times. Um, so that there's this very famous clock tower um, and just the walled fortress uh, or the walled citadel is why it's the UNESCO World Heritage City. Okay. There's like, okay. yeah. So there's a, um, a, a deeper yeah. military and political history. Oh, good. And, good. And, and, and it happens to be that Vlad Tepes was born there. As a maybe coincidence. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We we got that out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So we've put that to bed. Good. Yeah. We've put a stake through it. We've staked it. He's not getting back up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so on to a bit more of a somber topic: uh, yes. archaeology and mass disasters. So you have done quite a bit of work in different countries to identify victims of of various uh, natural disasters or uh, political conflicts. Can you can you tell us about some of that? Yeah. So this sort of is the probably what I am proudest of in terms of my work with forensic anthropology. Um, whereas I, we mentioned earlier, like a lot of forensic anthropologists, including myself, will work in the United States, but there's been a since around the early 1980s, there's been a movement of forensic anthropologists working in places where there have been either political conflicts resulting in a large number of disappeared people or in places where there's been some kind of a mass disaster. And some of the probably the majority of my work has been in the former of those contexts where I've 
collaborated um, and mostly worked with colleagues in a few different places who are on the front lines of trying to do those identifications. And so um, some of that work has been in Colombia, some of that work has been in Algeria, some of that work has been in Georgia, the country. The country, uh, yeah. The, yeah, in, in the Caucasus region, um, related to any number of the reasons why there have been conflicts. So I've, I've, I've basically been working with colleagues who are maybe wanting a workshop on reviewing human osteology or methods related to building a biological profile or even archaeological recovery methods. Um, and so less about necessarily doing some of that work myself and writing a report, more so trying to basically bring what I can from sort of my experience, um, just, you know, my own training and my own um, things that I have acquired to places where there that this have people have wanted some help. Can you help us with osteology? Can you help us? How, what are, what are, what would, what would your advice be about making age estimates, right? How do we know if the skeleton is from a 40 year old person or a 20 year old person or a five year old person? Um, and so, so those are the kinds of um, collaborations that I have done, some of which has um, actually involved some research as well, um, or developed into some on some research collaborations. And um, it started when uh, another colleague of mine, who is uh, now a professor at Binghamton University in New York, lived full time in Colombia and was offering, and, and her her job was to to do full time training. And so she brought me in a lot. Um, to help with different training classes. And this, this was a joint program offered through um, Colombian um, federal agency as well as the United States Department of Justice facilitated through the United States State Department. So, um, so, I, so that's how that um, has gone. And, and it's mostly been going you know, into other laboratories in various places and sort of understanding the scope of of what's going on, which is also oftentimes really complicated. Why are there, why is there a necessity for identification in the first place? Um, and so that's what I've done mostly. There's been one scenario back in 2010 where I was part of a team that responded to uh, the earthquake in Haiti, where we did a little bit um, of, of assisting with trying to identify people um, who passed away in in that natural disaster? So, right. uh, so there are, there are some forensic anthropologists. I can think of people that, for example, were in Southeast Asia after the tsunami, um, or people that have worked at in New Orleans that worked at Hurricane Katrina, or people that worked at Ground Zero or in Pennsylvania after September 11th, 2001. And so, so some of us are in that world maybe not doing it all the time but on an on a as needed basis or when time permits etc have you considered um you know sort of creating a video tutorials or like you know a, a like a temporary institute or something like a series of programs that that would help you know, I understand that it's not a cookie cutter situation at all, but could you uh, somehow widen this out so that other, you know, so that yeah, you're, you're only one person, but, you know, maybe you could provide yeah, I know, something I know that. a few agencies that are doing like MOOCs and things like that for um, folks looking to help 
like public health folks that are mm. looking to help people in. Wait, what was um, that word you used? MOOCs. What's a MOOC? M-O-O-C. It's a... Um, Big online class. Yeah. yeah. And oh, so okay. It's, okay. So, yeah. So it's like a, a sort of how like the, the Khan Academy and things like that, but much more specialized. And so there are these um, programs that um, have been able to provide assistance for folks on the ground in uh, Syria and the various diaspora communities right now in terms of um, assessing and helping with, with healthcare and things like that. And so that's with, um, like shifting populations of, of living people. Um, uh, so I, I know that there are some groups like that cause I've done previous work with helping coordinate sort of the stateside fo- experts with, with folks sort of on the ground. There's some, right. So, so, so a couple of different um, international NGOs. The one that comes to mind is the International Committee of the Red Cross. There's a whole forensic division of ICRC that is trying to do just this in terms of local capacity building, providing training opportunities, etc. What my observation is in terms of what is probably the most needed thing, um, or that my colleagues who are very, very skilled and completely proficient um, in, in a lot of their training and sometimes even better um, than, than what we have here um, in the United States. The thing that is sometimes the hard part is like accessing literature, right? Because sometimes professional people in, other, in agencies where I've collaborated with, their agency doesn't have a subscription to a journal, you know, or they, they to any of the number of sort of specific forensic anthropology or forensic archaeology journals. So sometimes, like, the best thing that we can do is provide access to literature. That's a, that's a great first step, but obviously drop in the bucket. Yeah, right. And this is the thing that I, I mean, that, that I, I know a couple of colleagues who have gotten Fulbrights or have gotten sabbaticals and gone, gotten into institutions for a semester or nine months. Um, an, another thing that's very interesting to sort of think about differentiation of forensic anthropology around the world is that forensic anthropology in the United States is very heavily in an, a four-field anthropological tradition. But in, in other parts of the world, forensic anthropology is thought of as like a medical um, a medical field. So there, there really aren't people per se who are forensic anthropologists, but are really skilled medical doctors or even dentists or kind of like in other parts of the world, archaeology is really sort of in history or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so how sort of our academic, um, how our academic training is divided up around the world to, to, to specialize or not specialize in these different sorts of things is also kind of an interesting question to consider um, in that, you know, it, it's organized a really certain way in the United States that isn't necessarily how it is everywhere else and places that really need this kind of work to be completed. So um, as we've discussed today, you've done extensive research in multiple parts of the world, multiple time periods, people living in very different conditions, very different lifestyles. Uh, but have there been aspects of, of these disparate topics that were more similar to one another than you had expected? And were there things that you thought would be sort of universal, but actually are, are very different across populations? You know, that's a really 
I think it's a really good question. Um, and comparative archaeology is inherently an interesting exercise. You know, in terms of very broad distinctions, this is tough. I'm I'm trying to see like my my very first sort of bioarchaeological project um, or, or first couple were related to my work in the Andes and my dissertation. I, it's crazy to have done a dissertation in the Andes and I focused specifically on a question of the Inca. And then as my dissertation was finishing up, I fell into this project in Romania, sort of a little, a little bit of overlap in time, but really sort of a distinction with regard to uh, a highly organized empire um, to then transitioning into looking at very rural people who were part of a, a large state, but maybe were were buffered from that in a different way. So, so I think that yeah, there are some distinctions that can be you know interesting to tease out when you're studying um, you know people that lived under the thumb of the Inca Empire. Even though, of course, the Inca, they, the, the way the empire was administered was not the same way in every locale. But in some of the places where I, I studied people in, in mortuary communities that were like clearly um, – I, I was really interested in this question of resettlement and how the Inca state moved people around and created these artificial communities. So right. on one hand, maybe that's it's interesting to think about a really heterogeneous resettled community – that was created by this very powerful state compared to really homogeneous medieval Hungarian Transylvanian <laughs> folks who to this to this day still have cultural continuity that can be traced back generation and generation and generation. So so I think that can be, and I've actually maybe never drawn that comparison until right now to think about some of those distinctions. And of course, there's really rich comparative archaeological study, but maybe I haven't thought about that enough. So it's a it's a real a really good question. Hey, thanks. We try. Yeah. <laughs> um, our last two questions are ones that we ask each of our very special guests to sort of have a through line of uh, hot takes from anthropologists. So uh, first one is, what's your favorite thing about anthropology? What's my favorite thing about anthropology? Um, I think my favorite thing about anthropology is that. In theory, it is the discipline better than any other that looks at the world and expects and understands that people are different from each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that anthropologists sort of understand that being different is okay, right? And that one is not necessarily better than the other and that we've sort of been this way ever since we've been modern people. And I, and I, and I kind of like that. And I, and I like that, you know, anthropology and archeology, span you know, we sort of look at these, you know, we can look at the contemporary world through this lens and you can also look at the past through this lens. And I think that's, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Very much in line with what we try to, to uh, conclude at the dirt, yeah. which is just, yeah. we're all, we're all human people. Yeah. Yeah, we all share humanness. Yeah, human there's people no who one way to be a human. Nope. Yeah, right. Oh gosh, wouldn't wouldn't that make the world a better place if everyone yeah. was an anthropologist? See, clearly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then our 
our second question we ask everyone is a bit more fanciful. It's the showstopper. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is what discovery or archaeological moment, either the discovery of it or it just happening the first time in the past, um, would you most like to have been a part of, either by doing the discovering or perhaps just being a fly on the wall? There's and I I was prepared for this question and I <laughs> I don't have a I I don't have a single answer because like, like I have like a million that sort of run through my head but the one that like takes me back to like learning about archaeology originally might have been like the discovery of King Tut. And, you know, like being the person to open that tomb and to like see it, you know, um, for the first time. I mean, the yeah, Howard Carter's discovery of King Tut. How about that? Okay. Sure. Yeah. It's your choice. Yeah. Sure. That sounds, yeah. Like, that sounds good. I mean, yeah. that sounds, it sounds magical. <laughs> yeah. Where's the time machine? Let's go. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so, so much for, for talking with us. It's been it's been really fun. Same for me. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Is there yeah. anything you would like the people to to see you on or read you in or follow you We are you all on? over those social medias. Yeah. You know what? I would say that if anybody is listening to The Dirt who is um, particularly interested in learning about bioarchaeology students out there that want to try their hand, we've got spaces uh, available um, to actually do some bioarchaeology in the summer of 2019 through um, a great opportunity at the University of South Florida's uh, USF in Romania Bioarchaeology Field School. So oh, if, you're, if you're a student and you're interested in this, um, there could be a really cool field school for you. Can, can we come? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you again, well, John. Thank you so much. Hey, take care and thanks again for having me. Yep. Bye. 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 Thank you all for listening to this very special guest episode of The Dirt. Thanks again to Dr. John Bethard for talking with us. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. If you want to tweet at us, you can do so at Twitter. We're at Dirt Podcast. Um, If you want to look at photos that we put up in conjunction with every episode, uh, we are at The Dirt Pod. Or you can find everything in one cozy home on the web at thedirtpod.com. And if you want to sponsor The Dirt, you can do that at thedirtpod.com slash goals, where you'll see a beautifully laid out list of all of our upcoming goals for producing content and for just being the best little podcast we can be. And if you want to email us about how we're the best <laughs> podcast, uh, you can do that at the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And so for the rest of the month, we're going to be bringing you some exceptionally spooky content Ooh. because it is the most wonderful time of the year. Woo. <laughs> and so the next few episodes are going to be a little bit Halloweenier. And then over on the Patreon, we're going to have some extra spooky, truly horrific. Yes. Uh, content for you over there. So get excited, folks. Mm. Spooktober is on. Boo. <laughs>
Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.